Have you ever experienced something that didn't live up to the hype? Maybe a movie you were expecting to be great. Maybe, maybe a year, you know, you're like, okay, 2022, no more of that. Next year, this will be great. Or maybe you said that in 2021 and, and it was kind of the same <laughs> in 2022. Um, but uh, we kind of get disappointed when something doesn't live up to the hype that we're expecting. You know, uh, professional comedians talk about this a little bit, that whenever someone meets a comedian, they say, oh, do something funny. <laughs> and they're like, well, I, I, I have to be on stage, or I have to do it a certain way. Or one, one time I met a hypnotist, and I was like, you're a hypnotist, show, prove it, you know, show me. And I don't know if he proved it or not, because <laughs> I might still be under hypnosis, I'm not sure. But I was like, yeah, show me, show me. Um, Elena is a, a nurse, and a very skilled nurse, and she is, does a fantastic job, I believe, <laughs> at, uh, at Shadyside over at the hospital. Um, but I don't really get to see her in action, um, except there's been a few times, and I remember the first time we, were, we had been married for about two years, and we were at a retreat, and we were sleeping, and someone knocked on the door, and someone else in, in another room was having some heart trouble, and they were like, we need a nurse, and, and Elena's always like, no one needs a nurse, just call 911. <laughs> She's like, just, just send them to 911, that's all I do, but, and I know she says that, but she had a demeanor about her where she was like calm, cool, and collected, like scalpel, you know, we didn't need a scalpel, but what do you need? Like, I'm ready to go. And she, she was like, we need aspirin. I was like, okay, on it. And I went and got Advil. She's like, no, <laughs> that's different. That's not what we need right now. And I was like, okay, I don't know. But just her presence, I was like, wow, okay. She lives up to the hype, like, you know? Not just in that, but in all the ways she lives up to the hype in, in my life, absolutely. But there's something great when, when kind of, the glory of something is revealed. When the hype, when, when you expect something to be great, and it is great, or it's even better than great. And uh, what we see in Jesus is that throughout his ministry, he lives up to the hype. There's a lot of hype surrounding him. We already talked about that. Here's the Lamb of God. He's come to take away the sin of the world. There's excitement about the Messiah, and Jesus lives up to the hype. One of uh, the quotes on my walls at home is this by Francis Chan. You cannot exaggerate God. I love, you just can't exaggerate. You can't say too many great things about God. And I need that reminder. That's why it's on my wall in my office. When something is simply the best, it just is. It just is the best, right? When something is just incredible, we recognize it as being the best. Um, our title this morning is Simply the Best. Jesus is simply the best. I have Legos up there because in 1934, the, the Lego company was started by a guy named, by the name of Ole Kirk Christensen. He was a Danish carpenter turned toy maker. And the motto for Lego was, only the best is the best. And, and you're kind of like, wow, you're, you're shooting your shot there. You're really saying that what you're making is the best. And almost 100 years later, Lego's kind of the best building block there, there is as far as toys go. They have whole um, Lego lands and they have movies. And you're like, wow. Only the best is the best. It lived up to the hype. And when something is the best, it kind of proves itself to be the best. And that's what we see in Jesus. He cannot be overhyped. He cannot be overemphasized or overindulged in. He lives up to his reputation time and time again. In our lives, when Jesus is old news, something's a little bit off. When, when okay, yeah, I know this story. I've read this, and that, that's cool. I know this stuff about it. When, when Jesus isn't amazing us, isn't causing our jaw to drop in, in awe of who he is, something's off. You know, Christianity, I believe, is simply choosing to be continually fascinated 
by the glory of Jesus over and over again. It's just the choice to say, I want to be continually fascinated by Jesus. And when we're off and we're not in awe of Jesus, it takes it as just a decision to say, what can help me get back on? What can help my, my eyes pop in wonder of who Jesus is? With that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll read some scripture together. Father God, you are simply the best. God, you are incredible. You are worth worshiping, worth honoring, worth us just uh, standing in awe of who you are. God, and at times uh, we get distracted or we forget that or, or we're so overly familiar with who you are that we're not fascinated by you. And I pray that this morning we can be reminded of your great glory, that your glory can be revealed right here before our eyes through the Holy Spirit, through your word, through what you've done in history and what you plan to do and continue to do in our lives. Dad, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the magnificence of who he is and his love for us. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we're going to read the story of Jesus turning water into wine. It's a good one. It's one that we're familiar with. Jesus turned, even, People not in the church are like familiar with this story. In fact, sometimes people use this story to say, yeah, you can get drunk. Jesus turned water into wine. And you're like, that's not at all what this story is saying. But it's such a familiar passage to the world. And it'll be cool this morning to kind of pull this story apart and look at what is it revealing about God. We'll actually start backwards in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. This is what it says. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So it says this moment was the first of many signs. It's actually the first of seven major signs that are in the, the book of John where John, who we're, we're studying the books of, of John this year, John points out and says, okay, there's seven powerful things that Jesus does to start his ministry. And number seven, by the way, is Lazarus raising from the dead in John chapter 11. So in the first half of John, it's punctuated by these miraculous signs that show Jesus' glory. And I love that phrase, he revealed his glory, that there's something magnificent about who Jesus is, and this story reveals that. And by the way, it's not just that Jesus can turn water into wine. That's surface level, but there's so much more going on here. And, and who Jesus is. Um, this is not Jesus, the magician, doing a party trick at a wedding. This isn't just a powerful miracle, but changing water into wine also gives us a glimpse of the nature of God and who he is. Not just his power, but his personhood, who he is like. And the more we see that, the more glorious it is. Even this phrase, by the way, being uh, that this miracle revealed the glory of Jesus, is really cool because it... it is a tie-in all the way to Exodus 33. Moses was, was uh, leading the people in the desert, and he would get frustrated every once in a while with, with God and with the people and a little bit of both. And he'd be like, God, you know, how do I know you're really with me? And God says, what do you want from me? And Moses says, show me your glory. And God, God does that. He shows him, but just a glimpse, just a little taste, and it was just Moses. But here in Jesus, we all get to gaze upon his glory. We all get to see his, his glory is revealed through Jesus for all of us to see. Not just some special kind of instance in Exodus for one leader, but for everybody. Through the Holy Spirit, we too get to experience the glory of Jesus. So let's read this story together. John chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. You guys are already there. Let me catch up. Jesus has called some of his disciples at this point, but he hasn't really started his ministry. 
But in verse 1, we start reading. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Great response. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have already had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. And this, this story is epic. Jesus is at this wedding, kind of just minding his own business. And his mom approaches him and says, There's a problem. There's no more wine. And you might think, okay, how, how big of a deal is this really? There's no more wine. That usually means the end of the party anyway, right? Time to go home. Can't stay here, but you, gotta, you, or can't, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. That kind of idea, okay. But what, what's significant here is in Jewish culture, hosting a wedding or hosting any kind of party was a, a symbol of, of honor. And you had a responsibility to feed and provide drink for your guests. And for the wine to run out, it would have been... Uh, a dishonorable or shameful thing that would have fallen on this newly married couple. And so them having no more wine meant that they would have been shamed by the community for not providing, for not being generous, for not doing what they were supposed to do. And they would have began their marriage, their, their uh, union together in a, in a space of shame within the community. And what's cool about this is Mary, who maybe she was involved in the wedding, maybe not, she, and it reveals her heart, goes, we got to do something about this. She doesn't figure out exactly what to do. She goes, I know who can help. And she goes to Jesus. And she says, Jesus, there's no more wine. And Jesus is like, what does this have to do with me? In fact, um, the, the Greek is, is there's kind of an idiom there that we don't catch. But what to you and what to me is what he says. Like, what, what does this have to do with us? And, and that seems a little bit harsh. When you read this, you're like, Jesus, that's your mom. Like, <laughs> you should be a little bit nicer. But what he's saying is, <laughs> yeah, thanks, mom. <laughs> but what he's saying is, this is not my time, right? I'm not, I'm not here to just turn water into wine or just do, fix parties. I'm here for a much bigger reason. But you see Mary's persistence. She's like, okay, guys, do whatever he tells you to do. He, something needs to happen here. And you see that persistence, which is really cool as well. And Jesus relents, and he, he does this epic miracle where he turns the water into wine. And I don't know exactly how it happened if, as he was filling up the jars or the... Uh, um, yeah, the, the jars here, as he's filling them up, was it like automatically it was water and then once it was in there it was wine or did he touch it? And it, I don't know what, it, what happened, but this water turned miraculously into wine. But not just ordinary wine. But they go and uh, they take it and the, the master of ceremonies, who's kind of like, I guess, the MC of the wedding, he's there, he's, he's keeping control of everything. And he's so flabbergasted by how good this wine is. He goes and pulls the bridegroom aside and says, hey, you guys, you guys did something amazing here. Usually you start with the best wine, and it gets worse from there because people's palates get a little less picky, basically, right? It gets worse from there. But you saved the best until last. 
And all of a sudden, this bridegroom that's supposed to, the, the groom of the wedding, who's supposed to be covered in shame for running out of wine, now he's praised even more. Not just did he have enough wine, but now he's had the best. He simply had the best here at the very end. And it's this amazing picture of who Jesus is and what he does. He doesn't just cover our shame and say, okay, everything's back to square one. He takes our shame and turns it into glory. He turns graves into gardens. He takes terrible situations and doesn't just cover them and say, okay, we're back to zero. But he, he credits us with righteousness. And he says, now, not only are you just forgiven, but now you have my same power within you through the Holy Spirit. And you're like, this is incredible. Jesus is the best. And he shows that right here in this instance. He turns shame into glory. What could have been disaster becomes a moment of praise. And what I like about this story, there's a lot, I'm going to say that a lot, but one of the things I like about this story is the couple did nothing to deserve it. Right? They might not even know what happened, but they did nothing to deserve it. It's not like they were close enough with Jesus, or they were righteous enough, or they served enough, or they tithed enough, or they did this, or they were this involved in the temple. They just were there, and Jesus was also there. And you see that picture of grace, that they didn't do anything to deserve it, but Jesus covered their shame and turned their shame into glory. It's this powerful picture. I think it reveals some things about Jesus. It shows his heart. He has this desire to take our, our, our painful points in our life and redeem them. You guys might be familiar with a woman by the name of Corey Tin Boom. She was famous for hiding uh, women during the Holocaust. And she would hide, uh, not just women, but hide Jewish people and save them. But she and her sister were caught and they were thrown into a concentration camp. And she documents kind of that experience of, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place, where she's hiding and protecting these Jewish individuals, but also as she's experiencing significant pain in the concentration camps. And she ended up surviving, and then she went on different kind of lecture circuits and shares her stories in really powerful ways. But one of the ways that she tells this story is she sits down and starts doing needlepoint. Got any needlepointers in here? Anybody do needlepoint? Some knitting? Okay. <laughs> But basically, needlepoint is you're, you're creating this powerful and, and cool, not powerful necessarily, flowers can be powerful, but you're making this nice image on the front, but the back has all this loose string. And so she's working on it while she's talking about her experience, and she's sitting on stage, and then she, she flips it over to show the back. And it's just all these loose uh, pieces of string and pieces of, of yarn that are just there, and it looks like chaos, and it doesn't look like anything worthwhile. And then she flips it over and says, when you get to the end... You see something powerful on the other side. And she uses it to show that all this terrible stuff I went through, and she's a strong Christian, says, through God, this is how God sees it, that I'm experiencing all this loose wiring and all this, this string, and it doesn't make any sense, and it looks terrible. But you flip it over through God and through his mercy, and I see something powerful, something beautiful. And that's the nature of Jesus, to turn simple water into wine, to turn shame into glory. This is his heart, and this, this miracle isn't just about a party but it's about him showing his nature to transform our lives from the inside out. On top of that, by the way, the, it's talking about from the inside out, these, these basins of water, they were for ceremonial cleansing. Jesus spoke against that. He goes, you're cleaning the outside of the cup, but you're not getting at the heart. And he proves it by saying, it's about dealing with the shame and forgiveness that I want to give you, not just simply washing of the hands, but I want to offer you something deeper. I want to give you uh, living water, as he says a little bit later in John 4. I want to give you wine that will never run out. Wine in the Bible represents uh, joy and posterity and, and just living a, a, a great life, life to the full. And this is what Jesus is here to give us. He's showing it's not just about ceremonial cleansing 
or just following the religious rites, but rather experiencing relationship with the Father and with Jesus. So it shows his heart. The other thing that it shows, this passage, shows the dominion of Jesus, that he has mastery, that he has power. So not only does he love us enough to step into our mess, into our shame, though he has nothing to do with it, and to forgive us and to love us and to turn that shame into glory. On top of that, he has power. You know, the process for turning water into wine is not necessarily super complicated, though it is impossible to do on the spot. Right? That's the miracle of it. But turning water into wine happens at the molecular level. It's small atom particles. I'm not going to go through the whole process because I don't know how it works. But it involves something called gly glycolysis, which is basically where you turn water into wine or you turn grape juice into and fermented and that whole process. But it happens molecularly. And I, I had a slide. I, I had a picture, but I, I don't have it now. But um, so you can go back. <laughs> but of just showing the chemical breakdown. And, and what I love about this image or just imagining the chemical breakdown is that Jesus has mastery over the smallest particles. Jesus has dominion over the smallest things. The things that seem like they would be insignificant to anyone else, God cares about. And God has power and dominion over those small things. He is the catalyst for every transformation, whether it's water into wine or sinners into saints. Jesus has dominion and power over, over even the smallest aspects of our lives. There's a Dutch theologian who was the former prime minister of the Netherlands named Abraham Cooper. And he says this. You can show the next slide. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. Read that again. There's not a square inch. I would almost want to change that to not one molecule, not one atom particle. In the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, cries out, mine. I, I'm in control. I have, I'm, I'm doing something. It feels like a mess on this side, but flip it over. I'm, I'm at work. I'm doing something. He has the power. He can work miracles even in the most dire of situations. He can do it. He is involved. He is working. You guys know the song uh, Waymaker. Even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. Never stop, never stop working. He's like, he's always at work. We don't always feel that way. Uh, there's a, a quote by uh, a friend of mine named John Lusk who says, God is working wonders even when we are wondering if he's working. God is working wonders, even if we're wondering whether or not he's working. He's, he's always at work. And, and I think conceptually, sometimes we get this, but then we look at our lives and we're like, but where are you? You're supposed to be at work. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm, I'm swept back and forth by these challenging things. But we got to remember that Jesus has dominion over all. He has dominion over all situations. The situations where you feel like you have no voice, or no power, you feel overwhelmed, he is at work. The situations with your kids that you just have to give up to God because you can't control it and it's overwhelming, he has dominion. The situations with your finances, God has power. The situations with your addictions or your sins or when you're filled with fear and anxiety, God is at work. He has dominion over the situations where things don't, just simply don't make sense. Why, God, are you doing this? And he goes, you'll see. You'll see, I, I'm at work here, whether or not you see it or not. The situations, maybe with aging parents, situations within your marriage where you feel stuck, situations where you feel like you're just out of control or hopeless. He has dominion and he is at work, even at the molecular level. 
There's nothing too small or insignificant to God. God cares. Jesus cares, and he shows that again in this story, that at the molecular level, he's working miracles. And in our life, on the, on the smallest of scales, he is at work, even when we can't see it, even when you need a microscope to see God at work. God works miracles, and this is a wonderful thing to believe, but it's not a safe thing to believe. It's a wonderful thing to believe that God is at work and that God is doing miracles, but it's not a safe thing to believe. Because if we truly believe that God is at work, it can be scary for a couple of reasons. One reason is that what if, what if that's not proven in the way that we want it to be? Where's my faith going to go? It's a lot easier, a lot safer to say, well, let me just not really have strong beliefs here. Let me just sit back and just kind of do my thing. But it's harder to say, you know what, out of faith, I'm really going to believe that God is going to work. That can be scary because you're putting your faith in jeopardy. It can be also scary because it calls you to action. Right? If we really believe that God is working, then God is working through you and me, which means i got to do some work too. That means i got to serve, or i gotta, I got to help out, or i got to pray more, or i got to believe and step out on faith and, 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 and do something with God in mind. It's a lot safer to, uh, to hedge your bets. Sometimes we do this in prayers. God, please give me this thing. But if you don't give it, please help me to be surrendered. <laughs> you know that prayer? That sounds like a really spiritual prayer, right? But nowhere in Scripture are we instructed to pray that way. We're supposed to deal with our surrender later, but in faith say, God, please give me this. I, I, I need this. I, I, I want this. This can help me. And sometimes through praying, our heart gets sorted out like, Okay, maybe, God, I don't need this, but I would really like this. Or this would be really, and our, our heart gets sorted out. But to pray in, in a way where you hedge your bets and say, God, give this to me, but help me be surrendered. If not, what we're doing is we're preparing ourselves for the letdown. And we're already operating from a place of, of not really believing that he can come through. And again, there's times in life where we need to pray that way. I get that. But, but when we really believe that he's at work, there's a fearlessness in our prayers. There's this intercessory prayer. And what we see in scripture is just, God, work. Do some miracles. Blow my mind here. And what, what I want to point out in this story, even with, uh, with Mary, she doesn't tell Jesus what to do. She just takes it to Jesus. It's actually what she doesn't say that's more important in this story. She doesn't say, God, or Jesus, we, son, we've run out of, of wine. Uh, can you do this? Can you go to the store? Can you get some more? Can you do your miracle thing? Can you, what, can you fill up these? She just goes, we're out of wine. She takes her problem to Jesus. And let's him be the master of how to figure out how to solve it. So sometimes our prayers sound faithful, but we're trying to manipulate God. They do this and do it this way and that way, and then I'll believe you, or then I'll give this or that or whatever, instead of just, God, this is what I'm dealing with. This is what's going on in my life. And there's this, this hey, we're out of wine. And then, of course, he tells us, hey, do whatever he tells you to do. There's some faith attached to that, too. But I, I love this heart of just taking things to Jesus in faith. It's not safe, but it's a wonderful thing that we're able to do. You know, as a, as a result, when we truly believe and we're called into action, we become third-day Christians. What's a third-day Christian? Well, we're going to talk about that. A third-day Christian. I don't know if you caught this, but in the beginning of chapter 2, it says this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee, or in Galilee. And you're like, what's the significance of that? Or is this like a Wednesday or a Tuesday, depending on how you're counting what? Why point this out? And John is no dummy. John, all the words through the Holy Spirit, they're, they're put in there for a reason. And there's a few, few reasons to that. One is, uh, it was Jewish custom often to celebrate a wedding on the third day of the week. The reason being 
when God created uh, the earth in the story of Genesis 1, he says in the beginning it was good. But on day 2, he actually doesn't use the phrase it's good. But on day 3, he says it's good twice. And so kind of the Jewish belief is if we have our wedding on the third day, it's going to be doubly good. And so that was kind of the practice. It's just God's going to come through here on this third day. But John is writing this after Jesus has risen from the dead. And so for us, the Christian audience, he's calling us to something even bigger that happens on the third day. Resurrection. That Jesus rose on the third day. And Jesus came, came out of the tomb on the third day. Incredible things happen on the third day. But sometimes as Christians, instead of living like a third day Christian, we get stuck as second day Christians. And we're entombed in the mess, we're entombed in the shame, we're entombed in the fear and looking for comfort, and we're just kind of stuck in this spot as second-day Christians. And, and sometimes we think that that's what Christianity is supposed to be like. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm no good, I'm messed up, but by the grace of God, but this is really hard, and I'm, I'm stuck in this, and, um, you know, people, we, we dealt with this a little bit yesterday, sharing about our strengths in, in a circle. We had our Bible Talk Leaders Workshop and, and we want to share about our strengths, but we just kind of feel this, but yeah, I got to talk about my weaknesses too, and this is what isn't good. And, and there's, there's humility there sometimes, but sometimes we're just stuck in this perspective of ourselves, and we're just stuck in the tomb. And Jesus is like, no, be a third day. Be the end of, of the, the wine cycle. The best is yet to come. It's great to be a Christian. Jesus is simply the best. Get out of the tomb and experience a, a third day Christianity. Third-day Christians don't get stuck in their problems, but they take their problems to God and to other Christians for help. Third-day Christians don't stay in their sin, but they confess their sin, and they, they look to repent. Third-day Christians get real about what's going on, uh, even when they don't know what to do. Third-day Christians take things to God. It's easy to stay in that second day, to stay entombed, but instead, uh, it's important for us to recognize that the best is yet to come. Just like Lego, right? The, uh, only the best is the best. That Jesus is offering me life to the full. In John 10, 10, he's offering me something great. The, the best wine is there at the end. I got to get out of the tomb, get out of the, the cheap wine cycle, and experience this, this epic uh, life, this epic blessing, this epic uh, uh, resurrection that Jesus is offering in my life. You know, there's a, a practical, I think, in this story too. And it's uh, this phrase, involve Jesus. So how do we be third-day Christians? Because I, I hear that, and I'm like, great. Maybe you're stuck in that second day. You're like, I would love to get out of this tomb. I've been trying. <laughs> help me out here. But one of the things that can help us is to involve Jesus. I love Jesus' response. Hey, why do you involve me? And I'm sure Mary is like, because you're you. <laughs> like, I'm going to involve you because you're Jesus. And there's something cool about that. And I think there's a practical for us. It's just involve Jesus in your life. Jesus wants to be involved. He's not just like, okay, figure it out, and if you have a problem, come to me. He's like, I want to be involved in every molecule of it. Involve me. Involve Jesus. And sometimes that just means taking things to God. I think as Christians, I struggle with this so much. It's so easy to compartmentalize. This is, this is the Christian stuff I do, and this is my regular life, right? These are my Christian friends, and this is the, the, my, my, my real friends, or whatever it might be. I don't struggle with that. You guys are my real friends. and my Christian friends, right? <laughs> but we kind of get stuck, and we just we compartmentalize. And then um, Christianity, or our walk with God, becomes the Christian stuff that we do, or the church things that we do, and not this aspect of Jesus is involved in every aspect of my life. 
that when I'm at work, Jesus is involved and he's working. It's not just, okay, work nine to five and then I do Christian things. No, he's, he's, he's at work in those moments that Jesus is involved in our day to day. He's involved when we're sleeping. He's involved uh, in our lives, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our interactions. He's, he's present, but we have to make an active decision to involve Jesus, to say, hey, hey get in here, be involved. I, I, I need you here. Practically speaking, that just may simply mean connecting with Jesus, having some quiet times, reading God's word. Sometimes that means praying more vulnerably, being like Mary and not saying, okay, I I need to take all my problems and here's how to fix it, God. Why don't you follow this plan to fix my problems? But rather, here's what's going on. I feel stuck. I don't have an answer, but I want to bring it to you. That, That can be a hard thing for me. I'm like, I'll go to God when I have a plan to fix it. And God's like, no, 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 come to me now. And I'll give you the plan to fix it, right? I'll give you some peace. I'll give you uh, something way better than what you're expecting. Sometimes it might involve, uh, if you're you're involving Jesus, just memorizing scripture, memorizing something about Jesus that you can take with you each and every day. If you're studying the Bible and trying to decide, do I want to live as a Christian or not? Do I really want to commit? Do I want to get baptized, have my sins forgiven, and live for Jesus? Involve him in that and say, God, Tell me, tell me when. What do I need to do? I've been dragging my feet. Help me see, God, what I need to see so that I can, I can make this leap of faith to commit to you and never look back. Teens, I dare you to involve Jesus in your life. You're around church. Your parents teach you great Bible stories, and that's awesome. But what do you know about Jesus? Not the stories, but what do you know about Jesus and what he wants to do in your life? Get with Josiah. Get with some other teen leaders uh, that might volunteer at the job fair later today. And, uh, and, and ask some questions. Who is Jesus? I, I disagree with what Jesus taught. I want to understand why he taught this. I think he's wrong. That's a great question to ask and to wrestle with. But don't just sit there and be like, ah, I kind of care, kind of don't. No, involve Jesus in the process. You're already at church. You're already at the teen devos. You might as well get something out of it, right? <laughs> grow. grow. Um, that's a, a weird pitch. But yeah, get something out of it. If you're married, involve Jesus in your marriage. You can't just, you can't just keep operating as, as things have been if you're stuck, right? You can't just say, well, things will change with time. Things will change as the kids get older. Things will change out of this situation and that situation. Involve Jesus. Ask someone, can you sit down and look at some scriptures with us about marriage? Because like, we feel stuck. Involve Jesus in your marriage. In the call to grow. We, beginning of the year, we all have goals. I want to work on this and work on that. And those goals can be kind of spiritually oriented, but not involve the voice of God in our life, not involve who Jesus is and imitating Jesus. Right? I want to get up earlier. That's awesome, but why? So you can connect with Jesus or just, just to get up earlier for the sake of getting up earlier. Like have these goals that, that help you grow to be more like Christ. I could go on and on, but I'll stop there. Just involve Jesus, whatever that may mean to you. Choose to involve Jesus in your life. Involving Jesus isn't safe, but it's good. You guys know uh, the, the, the Chronicles of Narnia? In one of the books they're talking about, I think in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, Aslan the Lion, who kind of represents Jesus, is being introduced by one of the characters. And uh, he's described, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan, who's never, never seen Aslan. She goes, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus isn't safe, 
Sometimes we don't want to involve Jesus in our life. Just like we talked about two weeks ago, we don't want to get too close to Jesus because that means we're going to have to change. The, closer we, the more we involve Jesus, the more he wants to turn our water into wine. And we're like, hey, I, I, I kind of liked my water. It was normal. It was simple, whatever. But he's like, I want to make things better. But it involves change. And so we want to keep him at arm's length. We want to keep that buffer seat between us and Jesus. But instead, make a choice. Say, okay, it's not safe to get close to Jesus, but he's good. And he's king. He has dominion. He has power over the situations where it's not clear whether or not he's working. I'm wondering whether or not he's working. He's working wonders. He is at work. He has dominion. Let's not compartmentalize our faith or play it safe, but let's involve Jesus because he is simply the best. As we move into communion here, I want to point one other thing out. And that's, you, you can't talk about Jesus turning water into wine without talking about wine and, and communion. Right? There's a reason, I think, that he starts with this miracle because towards the end of his life, at the very end, he says, what I want you to do in practice to remember me is to drink the, the wine or the juice that represents my blood being spilled and to eat the bread. He goes, I, it started with wine, this one miracle, and it only got better, right? The, the epicenter of the miracle is that he rose from the dead. And his blood represents how that happened. His blood being shed, his body being broken, is how we get to experience third-day Christianity, how we experience resurrection. It's because of his body being broken, his blood being shed, that we get the best. The best wine is saved till the end. He covers our shame. We, we, have so, we carry so much shame as Christians. We carry so much guilt around just as people. And yet Jesus steps in and says, I want to wash you of that. And I want to give you the choicest of wine through my blood shed on the cross. So today let's, let's do this in remembrance of him, his sacrifice for us as we take communion. But before that, we'll have the singers come up and lead uh, a song, I Need Thee Every Hour.